0: Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me Russell Hogg. My guest today is historian Edward Shawcross and he's the author of The Last Emperor of Mexico, which was one of the most highly praised books of last year and deservedly so as it was one of the most jaw-dropping and certainly one of the most enjoyable books I've read in years. Anyway, welcome Ed to the podcast. Thank you so much Russell, what a wonderful introduction, pleasure to be here. So let's start with a really surreal event, and that's the arrival in Mexico of the younger brother of the emperor, of the, well, I suppose, by now rather feeble Austro-Hungarian empire. Uh, and, and so he arrives in Mexico, and it's May 29th, 1864, and Maximilian and his wife Carlotta, they step ashore in Veracruz. And, and they haven't come as tourists, they've come as emperor and empress of Mexico. And once they get to Mexico City, they're greeted, you know, with wild enthusiasm and days and days of celebration. So I guess my first question is, how on earth has it come to this? How have some fairly minor European royals with no obvious connections to Mexico, how have they ended up as its rulers?
1: Oh, fantastic question. Um, I should try and keep the answer fairly brief because, um, it can spiral. But there's, there's two things really that are central to it and which I'll explain to you. And, and they're both centered on Mexico itself. So the first is that Mexico, in fact, unlike most other Latin American countries, becomes independent as a monarchy. Um, there's a first emperor of 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 Mexico, independent Mexico. His name is Agustín de Itabide. He's actually a Spanish royalist. He's fighting for Spain against the insurrectionists who who want Mexico to mm. have independence. But in 1821, he switches sides, he see which, which way the wind is blowing, uh, and he manages to unite the various forces fighting against Spain behind him with a plan, which is deceptively simple, that Mexico should be independent, but independent as a monarchy. And who will rule that monarchy? It will be one of the um, royal members of the royal family of Spain. In fact, he he asked Ferdinand VII, the Spanish king, um, but if not him, then one of his uh, relatives. Now, Ferdinand VII rejects this out of hand and um, he says no way i, I want the, the reconquest of what had been new spain and becomes mexico one of the richest parts of the spanish empire so Iturbide is presented with a problem. He's declared independence as a monarchy, but he doesn't have a monarch. His solution to that is simple. He has himself crowned emperor, becomes the first emperor of Mexico. <laughs> but his reign is dizzyingly um, short. He's only in power for nine months uh, before he's swept from power and forced into exile. He actually comes back in 1824 expecting to be welcomed as a hero. He's not. He's arrested and within three weeks shot as a traitor. Um, so Mexico begins its life as an independent monarchy, but very quickly becomes a republic. Now, this republic, independent history, is very unhappy. There's a series of revolts, riots, rebellions, violence much more important than the ballot box. There's a series of presidents, um, interim presidents, presidents not recognized by other presidents, uh, and it's a Sisyphean task to try and remember who they all are. To use an anachronism, it's something of a failed state. Now, that is not too different to the history of a lot of Latin American republics, unfortunately, given the, the legacy of Spanish colonialism and weak institutions and um, emergent democracies. But what the second thing that separates Mexico and marks it out as different from many other Latin American republics is its proximity to the United States of America. Mm. A, a later president is often uh, attributed this quote, and he says, "Poor Mexico, so far from God." so close to the United States. And nowhere would this have been more apparent in its history than in 1846. So you've had decades of political instability. And what happens in 1846 is the United States of America declares war on its southern neighbor. And this is a nakedly aggressive expansionist drive. Um, And the U.S. sends an expeditionary force down to Veracruz, that very port that you mentioned, where Maximilian Carlotta uh, will arrive um, about 20 years later, this force fights its way up the route of the conquistadores up into Mexico City, occupies Mexico City, and the stars and stripes are unfurled across the magnificent central square of Mexico, um, the National Palace where the president sits is, is is occupied, and of course the Catholic cathedral looming on the other side of the of the square, with these Protestant forces marching through and playing Yankee Doodle. So you can imagine um, the affront to to um, which I always think is a which is slightly. Um, I suppose now it's it's more associated with a sort of children's tune, isn't it? It's, it always really seems a sort of infantile tune to have as your yeah, as, yeah. as a, as a tune for sort of imperialist conquering troops. But but anyway, maybe that's just my perception.
0: I had a friend once, uh, a, a German Jew who. Uh, she'd escaped in the Kinder transport, and she always said to me, oh, Russell, the Germans had all the best songs. Oh. And so she would sing German marching songs as she right. uh, holidayed.
1: It, it's, it's sort of, some, yeah, sort of a Russian or German uh, marching songs that are Sorry, associated with militarism. Not Yankee Doodle, but in 1847, in, know, in in as the US troops are marching through, that, it very much seems to be you know, a, a militarist and imperialist conquest. And um, the, these US troops, it's the first time US troops ever occupy a foreign capital, certainly not the last time. Uh, And the only way Mexico is able to get them out is by signing an incredibly unequal treaty, probably one of the most unequal treaties in in history, in fact, certainly in modern history, they have to give up half of their national territory in return for US troops to leave. Um, So this is places like California, but also parts of Arizona, of course, the state of New Mexico, places that come on to be incredibly rich and prosperous uh, in the 20th century. But in the 19th century, this is a trauma and humiliation um, that in many ways is is the sort of final nail in the coffin of of the Mexican Republic, or at least in in, in any hope of Mexican politics politics um, sort of working itself out peaceably and, and, and consolidating itself in the way um, that you would hope. So what happens in the 1950s? And apologies, I said this was going to be a long answer. No, no, take, take as long as you like. So we've got monarchy uh, independence, we've got national trauma and humiliation with the US-Mexican Mex- War 1846-48. In the 1850s, rather than rallying behind, uh, you know, sort of common purpose and trying to rebuild the nation, Mexican politics becomes incredibly polarised between two loose, political parties, helpfully named liberals and conservatives, which um, goes to some extent to explain their views. Liberals argue that the reason why Mexico is being humiliated in the way that it has is because it's too backwards, it's too colonial, it's not modern enough, and they want to drag it kicking and screaming into the mid-19th century. And the way they're going to do that is primarily is by breaking the power of the Catholic Church, which not only has enormous spiritual hold over the Mexican population, but also is the largest landowner, has huge economic power. So what they do is they break up the, the land holdings of the, of the Catholic Church, which are, which are held in Mortmain, i.e. they can never be bought and sold, they, they're in perpetual security to, to the Catholic Church. Now, you won't be surprised to learn that conservatives don't think that Mexico needs to be dragged kicking and screaming into the mid-19th century. They argue that the single thing binding Mexico together is the Catholic religion and the Catholic Church. And therefore, the liberals' attack on on the property of the church is an impious, atheistic assault on the one thing that is holding the nation together. And this very quickly stops being a war of words and becomes an actual civil conflict in which these two two sides fight um, brutally and viciously for control of of the capital Mexico. City. Now to cut a long story short, the Conservatives lose. A man called Benito Juarez, an indigenous um, Mexican from, from uh, you know, sort of rises from rural poverty to become president of the nation, triumphs over his adversaries, marches into Mexico City in 1861. And really there our story should end. Um, but it doesn't because what happens is there's monarchists within the Conservative Party, some already in Paris, others who flee in exile after this defeat become refugees. And what they argue is to make Mexico great again, coin a phrase, is we need to go back to the original plan of independence, which if you've been paying attention, you'll remember (laughs) was for Mexico to be a monarchy. And of course, on their own, they're not powerful enough to do this. They've just lost the civil war, right? If they had been able to do it, they would have done it. But they managed to get the ear of one of the most powerful men in the world. uh, And this is a man called Napoleon III, who is going to be central to our story.
0: Now, hang on, Napoleon the Third—that's a name that I vaguely remember from history. Napoleon the First, some kind—is of, he, is he related? His
1: uncle is uh, is 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 kind of a big deal. Uh, people may have heard of him. Absolutely right. Yeah. So he is—he is a nephew of Napoleon um, the First, the, uh, the more famous Napoleon. Um, Napoleon's brother Louis is—it's it, 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 it's his son. Uh, who comes right. to power in France and what he, I mean, he's an endlessly fascinating character. We might talk about him more. But why he's in, he's not only important because he enables these Mexican monarchists to create the scheme that they've been dreaming of, but also the example that he sets. So he comes to power in 1848. He had various failed attempts to take over. He becomes a successor to the Bonapartist dream. His brother dies. Napoleon's actual son, Napoleon II, also dies in the early 1830s. And Napoleon III is sort of the, the last person um, left standing, as it were, of the next generation. Two coups d'état, which fail miserably and are disastrous and far, you know, literally farcical. Um, in 1848, he comes to power, but not through a coup d'état. He, he's actually elected because in 1848, revolution sweeps across Europe, emanating from Paris, as of course it always does. Um, the, the French monarchy uh, is chased off in, in, and goes into exile in England, as usual. And Louis-Napoleon arrives in, in Paris and stands in the national elections. He's the first ever democratically elected president of France, universal male suffrage. He wins by landslide. Uh, but there's a problem. The Second Republic, the name of the regime that he is going to head, its constitution prohibits him standing for a second term. Now, if you know anything about Bonaparte's history, um, you'll know that there's a, a very easy way around this. And that is, of course, coup d'etat. Um, third time lucky for Napoleon III. He launches a coup d'état against his own government. He's got his the army on board this time, which is of course massively helpful, and that is a success insofar as he's able to re- re- retain his hold on power. And when does he become the coup d'état is the 2nd of December 1851, and then in 1852, exactly one year later, he proclaims himself Emperor of the French, the French Second Empire, recreating his uncle's empire. Now. What he's done there is on the ashes of a republic, he's founded a monarchy, an empire. So empire here it doesn't refer to the overseas French empire; it refers to a political state. So you know, France is an empire in that sense, and he becomes emperor of the French. Why do people like to be called emperor rather than king?
0: Is there is there some constitutional distinction here, or is it just is it just got a certain flavour to it?
1: Yeah, it's really there's a sort of it's it is so it's a title above king emperor and it's there's a real inflation of of of, of emperors you know just sort of suffering with terrible inflation now in in the in the sort of early uh, late 18th early 19th century there was an inflation of, of the of the word emperor so previously of course you had the roman emperors and then the holy roman emperors and so that was the, the sort of the only real uh, em- emperor that uh, that you had in in sort of western europe But of course, Napoleon crowns himself emperor of the French. Then um, this sort of leads, as I say, to this inflation where other other European powers want to get in in the act. So you begin to get emperors of Austria. um, And of course, later you'll have the Kaiser, the German emperor, um, and also, of course, the Tsar. The the word Tsar directly comes from from Caesar, um, as in fact as Kaiser. So you get this inflation of emperors, um and it's just it's a title above king uh, and a, you know, queen Victoria is incredibly upset um that she's a mere queen and that's why you know Disraeli sort of has to invent the title empress of India so that she's she's a, she's not um, at dinner parties with her various nephews and cousins or whatever it is that she's 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 sort of not undone undam- by rank um and it, it's a, it's it's an indication of the ambition of Mexico in its in its independence declaration, but also its, its power and its wealth that it enjoyed under Spanish colonialism. That Iturbide thinks that he can, you know, proclaim an empire that is on par with these great European monarchies.
0: So, what kind of man was Napoleon III? Is he is he like his? predecessor what what sort of character is he he's an absolutely
1: extraordinary character he's very he's uh, he's obsessed by the bonaparte's dynasty legacy he thinks it's his destiny to fulfill the role that he has done to recreate his uncle's empire he's very different to his uncle though um he's he's not a military genius by any stretch of the imagination and that will be key in his downfall which we I'll come on to later. Um, he's also, he, he's unlike most other European monarchs, because although he's born as a, into, the, into the imperial royal family in 1808, obviously with the, his uncle's defeat at Waterloo, uh, being a Bonaparte in France is not of strong look. So his family is forced into exile and he grows up actually in Switzerland um, after that. He speaks French um, with a Swiss German accent, which if you've ever tried to speak French. Mm-hmm. In France, uh, with any kind of accent, you'll you'll know they don't look kindly upon. Uh, and in fact, when he becomes president, he's ridiculed for this for his slightly strange foreign accent, um, and he's a terrible public speaker. Uh, and what he actually he he, he loves a revolution and an intrigue and conspiracy from an early age because what he does um, as a young man, is he goes to Italy, and he's a sort of he becomes um, in romantically involved and indeed you know seriously politically involved with Italian nationalism. Which is a rising force. And nationalism in the nineteenth century, it it sort it, it it changes towards the end and becomes a much more what we would call right wing uh, ideology. But in its inception, it's a very radical democratic left wing idea because, of course, you're getting rid of of um, of the, you know, for example, the Austrian Empire which rules much of northern Italy and replacing it with a democratic state elected by the people. Right? So nationalism has a has, has a sort of much much more radical origins than we might think in the twenty first century. Um, Louis Napoleon gets involved with their secret Societies and in, in the early 1830s In fact joins a revolution which attempts To overthrow papal authority, Austrian Authority in Italy and create uh, An Italian nation state um, And so he's happiest in sort Of taverns, smoking cigarettes um, And uh, you know in these Sort of smoke filled rooms, back channels Secret diplomacy, so he's a man of Incredible ambition, he's a man who, who Has sort of cut his teeth as it were In conspiracy, of course he had two failed coup d'etat to try and take over the French state. Um, so he's a man who I, he, I assume we would say is, is economical with the truth uh, and very much um, the, the ends justify the means, as it were. So whatever his goal is, he will happily accomplish it by any any means possible, uh, you know, sort of ideas of, of honour, etc. He's not unaware of them, um, but he would be willing to go outside the normal kind of channels of European statecraft to achieve his goals, which is what draws him to the Mexican. Um, conspiracy, but he's
0: also he's quite a progressive ruler,
1: is he? Oh, he's he's well, he's a man full of contradictions, and we'll see this with with the Mexican, um, in, in, you know, his intervention in Mexico. So you would think a man who's destroyed democracy in France, proclaimed himself Emperor of the French, and is harking back to the Bonapartist past would be, uh, you know, a sort of a, an autocrat and a reactionary. Uh, he's not. He actually, he writes a pamphlet called Napoleonic Ideas. And if you're, you know, you know much about the history of Napoleon I, there's not, you won't recognize, <laughs> for, you know, much, uh, very much of the Napoleon that he paints. But the Napoleon that he paints in his Napoleonic Ideas is a man who is essentially a Democrat, who wanted peace. I mean, listeners might be surprised to know that Napoleon I's ultimate aim was peace in Europe. But that's what Napoleon III thinks, or at least writes. Um, and he Right, absolutely right. He is progressive. He's one of the fairly few examples of um, what we would say called dictators who actually liberalised their regime. So he comes to power; it's very repressive. There's censorship. There's very little parliamentary democracy. By the end of his regime, 1870, he creates something called the Liberal Empire, um, which to all which is actually more democratic than Britain. Um, you know, it's a very simple way of putting it. It's universal male suffrage. Ministers are responsible to Parliament. There's uh, pretty much a freedom of the press, etc. It's one of the most democratic regimes in the world. So by the by by the, by the sort of standard of mid-19th century, he's incredibly progressive um, in some areas uh, and a very much a liberal, but at the same time a Bonapartist um, who's got all of these sort of ties to the Bonapartist the past and glory and the need to have a, a, a grand foreign policy.
0: I kind of interrupted you, but I think you're going to come on to say, well, what's Napoleon's interest in Mexico?
1: Right. So in speaking of that grand foreign policy, if people have heard of Napoleon III, it's often through the famous Marx quote, um, the first time is tragedy, the second time is farce. So, of course, the uncle being the tragedy, the nephew being somehow farcical. In the 1850s, there's very little farcical about his regime um, whatsoever. He manages to end France's isolation after the uh, Vienna Settlement in 1815 by allying with the British in the Crimean War, which is um, which is a victory. It's a, it's a hard won and difficult victory, but it's still a victory defeating the Russians. In 1859, he goes to war with Austria and personally leads the army in Italy and defeats Franz Joseph, who personally leads his army. Um, and so, you know, more laurels to, to, to the French army. He's involved, he's involved, um, he involves France in the second Opium War. It's under Napoleon III that the, um, occupation of Saigon in, in what becomes French Indochina begins. So he's, he's, he's been victorious. Um, and of course, the colonization and conquest of Algeria continues. So in his own words, French arms have been victorious in Europe, North Africa and Asia, which leaves just one area to, 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 <laughs> to you know, if you're playing risk. Then you'll be familiar with this, to which to to you know French arms can be victorious, and that's the Americas. So there is always this idea of Bonaparte's glory and of the glory of France that's kind of you know central to, of course, to Bonaparte's regime. But any mid nineteenth century um, regime really has that kind of national glory at heart. But what draws him to Mexico is that it's going to be glory and empire on the cheap, because he's got these Mexican conservatives and monarchists who come to him and the 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 plan as they sell it is an incredibly attractive one in return for a few thousand troops french troops uh, who will overthrow the the tyranny that is benito juarez he may purport to be a liberal and a democrat but in fact he is a you know a small radical minority that's oppressing the vast majority of catholic mexico by attacking the church French army will turn up, proclaim Maximilian, um, who will come on to um, emperor of Mexico, and you know hundreds of thousands of Mexicans will flock to the to the to the flag, uh, and it will be incredibly simple. In return, you have a compliant. Client state, you're going to get you know you're going to get transit rights. There's all talk about you know can you you know how can you get access to the Pacific and Mexico is not a bad place to do that. And um, French business will exploit the incredible mineral wealth of Mexico, which the tales of Alexander von Humboldt and sort of El Dorado have, have never really gone out of the consciousness of Europeans. Um, so you're going to get all of the benefits to the to the metropolitan mother country of colonialism at a fraction of the cost. If you think about what's going on in Algeria, about eighty to hundred thousand French are tied down in Algeria and have been for you know, the best part of 20 odd years. It's incredibly expensive um, and it's brutal colonial warfare um, and for very little gain to the French economy, right? So this seems to be mm. a much better way of going about it. So the Mexicans have
0: turned up and presumably their problem is who's going to take the job, right? And so is it Napoleon who, who goes out and finds the candidate for them? How does it work? Right. So we are
1: him once again um, with a, a relatively simple plan. Mexico becomes a monarchy. Um, but of course, you need a monarch. And it's actually Napoleon III's wife, Eugenie, who um, is, is a kind of driving force in, in moving people onto the candidacy of Maximilian. Um, and the reason why Maximilian is, is a good choice in, we should talk about, we've spoken for, you know, a, a long time. We've not mentioned the actual Emperor of Mexico, but there is so much kind of going on in, in, this story, um, before, before we get there. So Ferdinand Maximilian, as we, you said right at the beginning, Russell, he is a Habsburg. And Habsburgs, although the Austrian Empire it is certainly a, a declining power, the luster of the Habsburg name is something that still shines and stands out across Europe the you know, the Habsburgs can trace power right back to the thirteenth century, unbroken you know, you think of sort of various changes in, in, in house in, in of royal family in, in England and, and then Britain. Um that's quite something. Uh, and so although he is the younger brother of Franz Joseph, who becomes emperor in eighteen forty eight, that momentous year um, he still is someone who is, you know, he's well known, what we today would call a celebrity. Um, and now he's, he, Maximilian is very different to his brother. His brother, Franz Joseph, very conservative, autocratic, very rigid as well. So he's a very boring person to have sitting next to you a dinner party. <laughs> Maximilian would be a fantastic person to sit next to a dinner party because he's gregarious. He's much more liberal. He's outgoing. He's interested in science. He's interested in art, in literature. He pens his own Poetry. Um, the only problem you might have at the dinner party is unless you're incredibly posh, he probably wouldn't talk to you because he's also an outrageous snot. But we'll put that to we'll put that to <laughs> one side. Um, because of these qualities and as, you know his his personal qualities uh, as much as his ideas, he is someone who is a dangerous rival to Franz Jose's power. There's there's court circles in, in Vienna who much prefer Maximilian. So Franz Joseph does what you do with any um, you know, troublesome younger brother. He, he puts him far from power and indeed far from Vienna, channels his energies into the Austrian Navy. Um, which sa- And he becomes commander-in-chief of the Austrian Navy, which sounds important. But you have to remember that the Austrian Navy was something of a joke in the mid-19th century. So it's, it's a little, I don't know, it's a bit... I'm trying to work out if Austria even has a coastline. Right, I mean, very small. So it does at this time, it's uh, uh, Trieste, uh, which is now in Italy. But was uh, then part of the Austrian Empire as the big port. But it's very, it's, 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 it's a little bit like if Prince William put Prince Harry in charge of the British Space Agency. Uh, you know, it's not, you're not going to achieve much in, in that role. Actually, Maximilian does. He modernizes the Navy and turns it into an effective fighting force. And he proves himself to be a very competent administrator. And he loves the role, but he, he considers himself destined for, for greater things, as pretty much everyone in our story does. Um, and what adds steel to his ambition? He's a dreamer, he's a dilettante, I suppose we would say. Uh, he's obsessed by his lineage, is his wife. So enter Carlotta, or um, Princess Charlotte. She's the daughter of a Belgian king. Uh, Maximilian meets her on a diplomatic mission, various pointless diplomatic missions he's put on by his brother, one of which is to the court of Belgium. He's dreading it because Belgium um, is a country that was created in 1831, uh, which is one year before Maximilian was born. And of course, like most of Europe, used to be ruled by Habsburg. So as I said, he's an outrageous snob. Um, When he gets there, he's very contentious of of Belgium and the Belgian people describes horrific balls and dinner parties and soirees where, you know, the, he says the elite of society are, are, are talking to their tailors and their cobblers. You know, you've got all of these kind of horrifically <laughs> bourgeois people uh, who Maximilian well, has to speak to.
0: That is, that is pretty shocking. It is, isn't it?
1: It is. Um, but one thing does catch his eye, uh, and that's the, em- um, sorry, she's not an empress yet, of course, Princess Charlotte. Um, she's only 16 when they meet, but she is, she is ferociously ambitious and intelligent. Um, her favorite subjects are, are religion and classics, uh, and she's incredibly studious. She chastises herself uh, chastises herself for not being sufficiently keen on her studies, not learning enough. And she's read huge amounts, um, but she's seen very little. And Maximilian has traveled. He's been around the Mediterranean. And so she's sort of swept off her feet by Maximilian, who's you know, tall and, and charming and, and fairly good looking, um, as Queen Victoria says. She, she says there's a notable exception uh which if listeners know their Habsburg history you won't be surprised, is the mouth and chin. But Maximilian um manages to, to grow a very distinguished beard, which sort of covers this. And Queen Victoria does the time ordered thing of saying, Well, he's, very, he's got a lovely personality. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um so it's sort of brushed over.
0: Carlotta she's not just ferociously ambitious and intelligent she's also fantastically good looking is not she
1: she is she's one she's um, it's in she's in, it's known to be one of the you know the sort of great beauties of uh, of, of, of mid 19th century royalty and um, you know it's very striking and you know and this is a sort of early age of, of, of photography and you can see especially the there's a well, there's a wonderful picture of them after they're just married where they both look so young but also you know very very handsome. How old are they when they marry? She's she, she's only seventeen when they get married. and um, Maximilian is twenty five, uh, and it's a, you know the, the the times has you know it's a, um, you know reports from it for, for foreign correspondents of the wedding, and there's some. some What's at sixty thousand people turn up to the you know the public party where the couple appear so you know it's a real it's that sort of real mix of monarchy and celebrity it gives you an indication of how important these individuals were in the national consciousness of their respective countries you know not a million miles away from sort of platinum jubilee style stuff that we're all familiar with at least in the uk so um and she also brings advantage so although um Although in a Belgian king, Leopold I is not much to be reckoned with. He has actually modernized Belgium under a constitutional government uh, and, and weathered the European revolutions of 1848 much better. And he is married to, to the, into the French royal family. So there's luster on that side. And what he does is he insists that it, as a condition of the marriage... Maximilian must be given an important position. And so Franz Joseph appoints him governor of Lombardy, Venetia, which is the richest part of the Austrian Empire, one of the richest parts, but it's in Italy. So again, a little bit like the Navy, um, it's, it's. I suppose, you know, again, if we're doing William and Harry, it might be if William were to put Prince Harry in charge of Northern Ireland. It's, it's a tricky job, right? <laughs> um, there's lots of competing nationalisms, ideas, um, and it's one in which you're likely you're sort of set up to fail in a way, which is what happens to Maximilian. His brother ends up firing him in 1859 um, and he's humiliated and left underemployed.
0: I mean, his brother is is worse than that because when he does try to govern according to his own ideas, his brother basically imposes his own, you know, with, well, I can't remember, but I don't think it worked out too well. No, it
1: doesn't. So there's again, and you see the, the distinct differences in their approaches here. Uh, but of course, as the subordinate young, younger brother and governor, um, Maximilian has to answer to Vienna. Franz joseph's um, solution to the sort of rising liberalism and nationalism in, in Lombardy Venetia is close the universities crack down harder torture arrest execute the, the dissidents maximilian his approach is, is is the opposite he wants to he's always very lenient and we'll see this later he doesn't he thinks that um, you need to kind of, you need to Im- you need to essentially work with the people in northern Italy. You need to create institutions where there will be representation to some extent. I mean, we shouldn't go too far. He's not a radical Democrat, but he's um, he's got a very different and much more moderately liberal and lenient um, a- approach. And he's really upset by what he's essentially ordered to do by his brother in terms of cracking down on, on, on dissidents.
0: So we've got Maximilian, who's now lost his job. We've got Carlotta, who is both ferociously intelligent and as you say ferociously ambitious and you've got napoleon and princess eugenie looking for somebody to fill a role so i guess the stars are starting
1: they're starting to align absolutely and so what maximilian does is he channels his energies into this magnificent castle neo-gothic i mean say magnificent but it's sort of it's extraordinary it's it, it's a kind of neo gothic fairy tale um that he's, he draws on the habsburg past on some norman influences in sicily and it's fantastic you can visit it it's called miramar um, um which is um because it's also influenced by his great love of spain and um, it, it, Carlotta, so you think, and it, it nearly bankrupts him building it, and it, it's on a barren rock overlooking the Adriatic, just out Trieste. So it's um, he's turned, and he's got magnificent tropical gardens, and um, he's turned this this barren rock into a bucolic paradise with a neo gothic fairy tale castle. So you can see he's a man who's able and used to bending the world um, to his imagination. Now you think that if you if you built this magnificent sort of paradise, um, your partner would be appreciative, but Carlotta um, says that what stretches ahead of them is just staring out to sea till old age, you know, to bored them until they die, essentially. And that if Maximilian um, will just be a glorified janitor sort of tending to the gardens, doing up the toilets, because in, in, he loves, I mean, he, you know, in serious, he absolutely loves design, interior decoration, and landscape gardening. <laughs> so, you know, he can get very involved in those things. Um, but for Carlotta, you know, a Habsburg um, and, and someone like Maximilian shouldn't be involving himself in those trivial matters. He's got a greater destiny. So when the offer comes in um, from the Mexican conservatives, backed by Napoleon III, to become emperor of Mexico, this is the suitably grand destiny, providential mission that both Maximilian Colotta um, feel that they should have in life.
0: So Maximilian, I mean, he's he's no fool, is he? So when the offer comes in, he's a bit hesitant because he knows it's not straightforward. So what what are the conditions he puts on on taking on the job.
1: Absolutely. So it's it's important to stress here that this monarchy is still entirely imaginary and it's being offered not by diplomats or people representing the people of Mexico, but by a faction defeated in civil war, admittedly backed by one of the most powerful men in the world, Napoleon the III. Um, so Maximilian is, is, is he's a, He's excited by the idea. I mean, it's you also have to remember that it was under the Habsburgs that, that Mexico was conquered and colonized by the Spanish in the 16th century. So for a man obsessed with his past, his Habsburg past, Charles V is is, is the is the Habsburg emperor and king of Spain, who um, under which it comes um, um, conquered. Uh, this is this is absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's almost uh, a fantasy. In fact, he might argue that it always remained a fantasy. But as you say, he's not, he's not, he's not an idiot, um, and so he places two conditions, which is very simple. One, it must be supported not just by France, but by Britain, the most powerful maritime power in the world at the time. And also, it must be uh, he must be called by the people of Mexico. As we said, he's a moderate liberal, and therefore, he's expecting essentially for it, there to be a vote in Mexico, which will confirm that he is the preferred choice of the Mexican people and that they wish to be governed by a monarchy. And
0: presumably the reason he needs France and Britain to be supporting him militarily is that he's aware that sitting north of Mexico, and we've had the Treaty of Guadalupe and everything that came from that, you know, he knows that America is not going to like this, right? Right,
1: absolutely. So um, that's the key in 1861. As one civil war ends in North America, another begins, and that's the US Civil War. And that's the reason why there's a geopolitical space uh, in which to carve out a monarchy. But even though the United States of America is tearing itself apart in this conflict between Union and Confederacy, the Monroe Doctrine, um, formulated in 1823 by President James Monroe, uh, essentially declares that there should be no European interference in the republics, as they have now become, of Latin America. And therefore is a monarchy set up by French troops with a Habsburg on the throne is the very nightmare that the Monroe doctrine is designed to prevent so there is not there is US hostility to the scheme and it should also be pointed out that nobody thinks that US expansion at Mexico's expense is going to finish anyway so the reason why people in Mexico some people in Mexico come to support this is because they see a monarchy guaranteed by European powers with a Habsburg prince as a much safer guarantee of Mexico's future as, a, as an independent nation state, which it normally will be, which it will be a constitutional monarchy ruled by Mexicans with a Habsburg at the top. Um, a much better guarantee to the future than the tumultuous and unstable republic which has seen it first lose Texas and then of course half of its national territory in 1848. So having the, the guarantee of Britain, Maximilian thinks, will be a surefire way to prevent the US either trying to kick him out before he can establish his regime or subsequently the US doing what they've done since the, since independence, which is just take more and more and more land across North America. And the great thing is, is that the British do come into line. They're right behind the
0: scheme. At least that's what Napoleon <laughs> tells Maximilian.
1: Yes. So as we said, Napoleon III happiest, um, you know, in, in smoke-filled rooms and uh, duplicitous conspiratorial diplomacy. And in, so for him, this must be, you know, he must be he sort of so many plates spinning. He must be enjoying this immensely. He 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 goes to Britain with this scheme. Uh, which is that instead of um, going, so we should just say by the way that Benito Juarez in Mexico has suspended Mexico's foreign debt payment because the government's bankrupt, oh. and that is the pretext for European intervention. Right in the mid 19th century, if you don't pay your debts, the British Navy will turn up. So Britain is is already with France and Spain, who are also owed money, going to send a military expedition. Napoleon III says, "Hmm, okay, we could have a one-off debt collection uh, uh, and get get the the Mexican government to to read to, to start those payments, but." It's hostile to Europe. To Europe, and We've seen that. Benito Juarez is no friend of European monarchies. Would it be not be a much better long-term solution instead of this um, debt collection mission to turn it into regime change or turn Mexico into a monarchy? And, um, and of course, Maximilian has made that a, a precondition of his acceptance that Britain will back the scheme. Napoleon III expects that um, Palmerston, who's prime minister at this time, will get behind it. Uh, and that Britain would leap at the opportunity to be involved in this uh, in, in regime change. Um Palmerston he's not He's not, he doesn't leap at the opportunity. Now, it's not quite as clear-cut as he, as, as Britain saying, no, because Palmerston is no lover of the United States of America, is entirely aware that the continuing um, expansion across North America is to the diminishment of British power uh, not, and a threat to Canada, and would be very happy to see Mexico established as a monarchy. But he says it's going to cost, you know, um, 20 millions and millions of pounds, I suppose billions in today's money, uh, and you'd need to send twenty or 30,000 British troops. And he says, there's no way we're going to do that. But... If France wants to do it, uh, it will, and act in our interest and we don't have to provide any support, so much the better. Uh, but he makes it very clear to Napoleon III that um, while it might be desirable in an outcome, Britain will in no way, shape, or form be involved and certainly will not guarantee it in the way that Maximilian wants. So when um, Napoleon III gets Palmerston's response, It's, of course, not the response that he's looking for. So what he does is the French emperor writes to Maximilian and says, good news, Britain's entirely on board. (laughs) Which is a much better response from Napoleon III's point of view. But unfortunately, it's not the actual response of the British government.
0: So Maximilian at this stage says okay, I'm up for this. And and at that stage, the French invasion takes place. Is that, is that the order of events?
1: Right, yeah. So uh, Maximilian is sort of conditionally accepts the offer in January of 1862. That happens to be the precise month where French troops, with the Spanish and British troops, land in Mexico. Now, there's incredibly complex and tedious diplomacy, but the long and the short of it is that the, the Spanish and British eventually withdraw uh, and leave the French troops on their own. As soon as they realise... That um, the French plan is much more ambitious than than the orders that they have. The French army is is small there. There's only about six thousand men by uh, April 1862 when the French army begins to march into the vastness of Mexico again up the same route that the U.S. took and and Cortez the original conquistador took from Veracruz to Mexico City. So 6,000 men, it's not many, uh, and it gives you an indication of how easy Napoleon III thinks this is going to be. But just to put it in context, the U.S. expeditionary force that fought its way up exactly the same route was only about twice the size. Uh, so it's, although it seems small, um, it, it, it's, it's not, you know, it's not a ridiculously small number. And of course, Napoleon III thinks he's going to have something that the US didn't have, which is Mexican allies who are supposedly going to flock to the banner of the French flag. Now, unsurprisingly, most Mexicans uh, do not flock to the French flag, but to the Mexican flag, where they already have a constitutional president who's just v- been victorious in civil war. And is in fact confirmed as president um, in, in that year previously, 1861. The French are confident, though, because um, they believe, as um, they believe, you know, probably for most of their history, that they have the greatest army in the world. And not without some, you know, basis for that, as we mentioned, because they have defeated the Russians in the Crimea and they have defeated the Austrians in Italy. Um, And so they march before the second city of Mexico Puebla, which is the gateway to Mexico City, key, key, key point on the route. And the French commander in chief, he's is to say, incredibly confident. He deploys the, the you know the French um, army, uh, six thousand men in, in battle formation, uh, and launches a head on assault after a rather ineffectual artillery bombardment, and ex- expecting the city to capitulate. Uh, you know, the first sign of the French cold steel. But wave after wave of the French army is cut down by the heroic resistance of the Mexican army that is defending Puebla uh, for for all that it's worth, uh, and eventually the commander-in-chief of the French army is forced to sound a retreat. So the French army flees um, for the battlefield and is uh, um, a sort of very um, long and arduous journey back to, to, to a fairly distant town in order to, to regroup. And so this is, a, this is a momentous moment in Mexican history, but also world history. Um, it goes down as Cinco de Mayo. But the reason why it's not just momentous in Mexican history, but I would say world history, is the defeat of a European army Outside of Europe, in this you know this period of time is incredibly rare. Um, so it's a testament to the, the heroism and organization and discipline of of the Mexican forces that are able to defeat the French. And of course, again, that's where our story should end, right? Because the whole point of this plan was that it was going to be easy, and that it was going to the French would turn up, be welcomed as liberators, and um, there'd be in Mexico City by the summer of of eighteen sixty two at least. But, of course, you've got a Bonapartist in charge of France. So rather than um, accepting that this plan is not going to work, he says the honour of Napoleon III says the honour of France is engaged and he sends reinforcements. 30,000 men by the end of 1862. But the commander-in-chief is... Uh, he, he, by the way, the, the commander-in-chief who was defeated outside Prepa is sacked. Uh, so we're on to now our, actually our third commander-in-chief of the French forces in Mexico, um, a man called Foray. He is absolutely determined not to be humiliated in the same way. And it launches a very slow, methodical siege, um, which eventually takes Puebla, but not until a year after that first defeat. So not until the summer of 1863, the French troops eventually make it to Mexico City.
0: And of course, that time delay is going to become quite critical later in the story because the events of the American Civil War and the timing of the end of the American Civil War will come back to that later. So the French succeed. I mean, they are victorious. They march yeah. into Mexico City, no?
1: So yeah, they, they are. Um, but with the crucial caveat that Benito Juarez is not defeated. So the French take the capital because Benito Juarez, um, his force, he put it, all of the forces were in, in Pueblo to defend it from the French. And about 20,000 Mexicans are uh, uh, surrender. They're out of ammunition and supplies. They've been under siege for months and months and months. And therefore, it's impossible to defend Mexico City. They simply don't have enough troops. But Benito Juarez doesn't surrender. He merely retreats. Mexico is, of course, huge. It's about, I think, for I can never remember. It's four or five times the size of France. It's enormous. And so Benito Juarez really retreats northwards um, towards, you know, to, to, the, to, to the U.S. border. Um, and there's a lot of Mexico to get through before he gets there. Uh, and therefore, the French are victorious uh, and they are able to engineer a political theatre where they create an, an assembly of what they call notables, essentially sort of um, the elite of Mexican society, which proclaims the monarchy and calls the Maximilian to come. So they managed, they have orchestrated what um, the outcome that they wanted but they haven't defeated Benito Juárez who is still for many Mexicans con- constitutional president.
0: I mean he knows by this stage that the British aren't going to support him and yet he's by this time he's fallen in love with the yeah. plan so he accepts the invitation doesn't he he and Carlotta set sail i think i think they set sail in sort of the flagship of the of the austrian mm-hmm. navy and they land in, in Veracruz which is where we yeah. started the podcast <laughs> it seems like a long time ago now. <laughs> yes, sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> 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 there's a lot of fun. no, no. This is this is great. I'm sorry to be uh, sort of keeping you so long, but it's it's such a good story. Anyway, Maximilian and so he lands in Veracruz and a sort of some dogs howling in the street. Uh, but you know, there's some tumbleweed blowing down. There's really nothing there. But I think as he as he marches in towards Mexico City. The French have engineered mm. celebrations and so on. And it is quite a triumphant arrival, isn't it?
1: It is. So the initial departure of uh, this rather, at Veracruz is disastrous. Um, and it's, as you say, when they, they, they actually arrive on the 28th of May, it's not till the 29th that they set foot on Mexican soil for the first time. And this is because the welcoming committee, has got the wrong day for their arrival. <laughs> uh, and, um, and therefore, there's, there is no one there to greet them. And there's no sort of o- organic, spontaneous eruption of enthusiasm because Veracruz used to be the seat of Benito Juarez's government during the Civil War. So it's actually a, um, a traditionally a liberal stronghold uh, in, in Mexico. And so the people look on with cold indifference as a foreign army imposes a, a foreign ruler. But these things change. Partially, this is because the welcoming committee gets to act together and it's carefully choreographed and stage managed. But also there is popular support for the empire and for Maximilian in Mexico. It's not the case that he is without support. Um, he has the support of the conservative party, which is a, which is a significant um, you know a political movement in Mexico. Also, remember Benito Juarez abandoned the capital. So when he enters into Mexico City, certainly at elite level, uh, the people remaining in Mexico City either. Not that interested in politics, right? They, they don't care too much. Or they they, they they support Maximilian because diehard juaristas have left the government with um, Benito Juarez, juaristas being the name given to Benito Juarez's supporters. And so there is a magnificent reception in Mexico City. Um, and Maximilian Carlotta driven through the grand boulevards of the capital. And if and it's an absolutely magnificent city today, Mexico City, uh, and, and would have been then. And in fact, then would have been unrivaled except for, you know, a few of the great European capitals. I mean, remember that Washington has only just been built. Um, and Mexico City has been the center of Spanish power in North America and beyond for hundreds of years with the magnificent architecture, cathedrals, churches and this great grand square, which I think today is still the third largest uh, public square anywhere in the world. So it lends itself to this imperial procession. It's said that um, the balconies lining the routes until they get to the magnificent cathedral at the center of Mexico City, go; they're selling for sort of $500 uh, for a space on the balcony so you can you, know, you can sort of wave and cheer and look. At the imperial couple as they're driven through. And it seems as though there is genuine and um, popular enthusiasm. In fact, on so Carlotta, she's so distressed by the, the, uh, the, by the welcome at Veracruz uh, that she nearly cries. Um, she, she, she very rarely cries. Maximilian cries a lot, actually, I should say. He, he, he <laughs> cried when he accepted the crown, uh, the, when he left Europe. Um, there's plenty of other moments where he cries. Carlotta doesn't. She's actually, because Maximilian is kind of overwhelmed by the reality of, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of mm-hmm. what he's accepted. Carlotta is enthused and energetic. Not at Veracruz. But when she gets to Mexico City, she changes her mind and she writes to um, Eugénie, the, the French emperor's opponent, wife, that, that the empire is possible and there is popular support and it re-energizes her. So it, it seems to be quite an auspicious beginning.
0: This is Editor Russell here. At that point, I am going to split the podcast because it's running very long, even by my standards. And so I'll split it here. And... I think it's a really good place because Maximilian and Carlotta are at perhaps a high point, And I hope you'll join me in part two to see what happens next. See you there. Well, that's the end of today's show. I hope you enjoyed listening, and if you did, do please join me for the next episode. And if you have the time, please do recommend me to your friends. And a share on social media and maybe a review on iTunes really helps my guests get the audience they deserve. Goodbye for now.